0: Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Today's guest is Mark Bischel. Mark grew up in a small town in southwest Missouri, later went to college at Central Missouri University in Warrensburg, and subsequently ended up in Kansas City working for an ad agency as the in-house illustrator. While working as the in-house illustrator for Gregg & Associates for many years, He began teaching a drawing class at the Kansas City Art Institute. And while there, he became a little introspective and wondered what else was in his future and decided at that point to attend the master's program at SVA, School of Visual Arts in New York City, in the program run by Marshall Erisman, and he will tell us a little bit more about that. Let's get into it. Mark, tell us a little bit what your work day was like at Greg and Associates, being the in-house illustrator.
1: Well, at first, I wasn't even an illustrator there. I started out doing production, but um we he you know rapidly uh, added people, and I was sort of narrowed into the illustration as he started to bring that work in. And I would say that every day I showed up, I would not know what I was in for. Um, It could be a line drawing for Commerce Bank, and then the next day it would be um, a squiggly cartoon for the Missouri Lottery. And then right after that, I'd be doing something for Captain D's Seafood, which would be like uh, like, uh, like they might want an airbrushed uh, uh, Frank Sinatra, like a fish but look like Frank Sinatra with some backup singers. <laughs> so you got like, to do
0: some uh, uh, yeah. anthropomorphic portraits as well.
1: Yeah, it was the, um, uh, yeah, it was the uh, chickens. The, there were three sexy chickens backing up a singing uh, Frank Sinatra fish. It was for the fish and chicken <laughs> special.
0: Oh, so, you know what? Uh, a bunch of us illustrators need to get together and we'll have a competition of who did the weirdest job and, of course, my entry into that is I had to paint a cat with an impacted bowel. And they kept sending the illustration back because I didn't get the expression on the face correct.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, with me, the first thing that pops into mind is the Jerry Lewis Telethon. Um, now, what was your role uh, in that? I Well, we got some work for IRA Realtors. And they were a big promoter of the telethon. This is way back 100 years ago. And I did a. They wanted a portrait of Jerry Lewis with the uh, one of the the child who was the MS poster child for that year. Um, And I did a pretty nice watercolor portrait from the reference they gave me. I invented a lot, but it was pretty good. And then the client said, No, no, no. We that is the pre-heart attack Jerry. We want the post heart attack, Jerry, and he's a little bit bigger and we, you know, a little older. And so they sent references. I had to like dab out, you know, the, it was, uh, I had the only way I could cope with some of these things, like the doggy raincoat ad that I did, uh, you know, and some of the crazy clients was I had a, a file, um, it was called (laughs) Failorama. Uh,
0: I think we all have that file. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, What was it like being uh, such a diverse illustrator? I mean, they would come in and say, guess what, Mark? You get to do this today, or you must do that today. Uh, Did you like that?
1: Well, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm looking, uh, I'm always thinking, well, this, this is just temporary. You know, I'm just starting out here and I've got to take the hit, you know, And I I guess, I don't know, it's just kind of my upbringing, like, you know, this is not going to be easy. And so I was working there and I enjoyed it. But, you know, I was very young. And so I thought, I've got lots of time to, you know, morph into Bart Forbes or you know, uh, Mark English or, or, you know, uh, you know, somebody that I admired at that time, you know, I'd find my way. And, um, but you know, the daily routine was a different thing and to make a living and not really come from a background, you know, come from a family of modest means and not really in a major gigantic market for editorial illustration, And being an employee of a small studio, which was very hungry, was very reactive. And so the work that I was doing was the work that was there, and I was caught up in it.
0: Well, I think one of your strong points always has been your drawing ability. And you got that ability by constantly working at it. And I think being as diverse of an illustrator as you were put in the position to be, I think that just further enhanced your drawing. And as some people may or may not know or remember, I was working part time at the Kansas city art Institute and they put out the word, Hey, we need a drawing teacher, a figure drawing teacher. And I said, Oh yeah, I got the guy. I know this guy. (laughs) And that was you. And, um, you ended up working there several years off and on, didn't you?
1: Yeah and I appreciate that that's actually um I believe that 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 call that you made um really changed the direction of of what I'm doing even now and so when I'm having, you know, when I just taught this summer, you know, I think, well, that Brent, you know, he thought of me at that point. But then, of course, when it's going bad, I blame you for all that. So, <laughs> I'll take uh, the blame. <laughs> <laughs> that Brent. But I, yeah, basically, I never thought about teaching at all. I was directing a life drawing circle of adults. Um, we would hire a model and we would hold class in different locations around the the, the, the city in Kansas City. So it might even, we even had it in a Catholic school in the evenings at one point. And we would hire the model. It was a lot of artists from Hallmark. And so, you know, I think you knew about that. And and, and as far as drawing goes, I think that that's an important thing, the life drawing. But yeah, the teaching was a fantastic um, opportunity And it really made me, it was kind of like a a coming to myself moment where it's like, what am am I about? So when I walked into the studios and classrooms of the Kansas City Art Institute, it made me reflect on what is it that's important to me? And one of the things was, is I really liked teaching. And so I started thinking about maybe getting a master's.
0: So that was part of the evolution of not only you as a person, but you as an artist. So you had this realization, where did that take you?
1: Well, so I'm there for like three years. I'm adjunct faculty and I'm teaching all days, uh, all day on Mondays and Wednesdays. And I was teaching um, drawing for illustrators and we had some great students, which we could talk about those legendary that we, have gone out to do We great did share things.
0: several students that went on to do absolutely amazing things.
1: So it's kind of uh, amazing. It's an amazing thing. And um, but one of the teachers, John Ferry, who we both love um, very much, kind of a a wonderful guy. Sure. He's Um,
0: still there. He's full time at the Kansas City Art Institute.
1: Well, he had gone to the School of Visual Arts and he had attended uh, Marshall Arisman's MFA in illustration. And that is one of the few illustration programs in the country where you could actually get a master's degree. And I was, I knew that I would never get a full-time teaching position with a bachelor's degree. It'd be very hard.
0: Well, Marshall was running that program and did for many, many years. And I think maybe he still is uh, walking those halls a little bit in some kind of um, aspect. So what did you think of Marshall's work?
1: Well, Marshall's work, I always appreciated it, but being a lover of the Brandywine school, like Howard Pyle and NC Wyatt oh, and, sure. and Austin Abbey, you know, those people at that time, especially at that time, Marshall was not um, you know, maybe in my top ten, you know, maybe he was in the top ten. I appreciated his work because it's hard hitting. Um, but I was more into like an older I was kind of caught up in a nostalgia about illustration. At that point, I was painting a lot and sort of caught up in that. And then John invited Marshall to come to the Kansas City Art Institute for a workshop. Like one of
0: their visiting artist programs or something?
1: Absolutely, for like a three-day workshop, and Marshall graciously showed up. And of course, I was getting ready to really hate on this guy, right? Because I figured he'd have like. (laughs) Because
0: of the aggressive nature of his work.
1: Yes, if you look at his work, uh, especially his older work, um, it's a lot of like barking dogs with metal teeth, and uh, there's a, a, yeah, you you just have to, kids, you just got to look it up. If you don't know who he is, you should. Uh, Marshall Erisman. I thought that he would show up and kind of reflect some of that, maybe New York attitude or something. Well, he had a New York attitude, but he's the sweetest guy and smart guy. Nobody's fool, and but very warm and very approachable.
0: And I I, thought, I've only uh, been in contact with him one time, and I can totally echo your points. He was just the nicest, most sweet, lovable, warm. He's just the warmest guy in the world. I don't think he's ever met a stranger and I would have, I would have, well, I'll say you were very fortunate to be in that program when he was still, you know, has had both hands on the wheel. So that was a great opportunity for you and everybody else that went through the program.
1: Yes. And he, uh I basically said, you know what, Marshall, I may just uh there was a faculty lunch. I said, I may just like dump all this and come to New York. He said, Well just come on in, you know. He said, <laughs> I'll talk to you. Why don't you you know, and so I did. Uh and, So he
0: was like your ambassador to the school almost.
1: Well, I tell you, I had to go through the same, you know, uh application uh, you know, requirements because they do get a lot of older students and there's a very high threshold uh, for acceptance because they only take 20 students every year. There's only 40 students in that whole program. So I basically just upped and moved and, um, you know, at the age of 39, um, with along along with two of the other students that I taught like a year before were there. So, um, and I went to New York. It's a Um,
0: two year program. Is that correct?
1: That's correct, it's a two-year program. During the summer, well, in the first summer, there was really only one summer. And in the first year, Marshall had us make a book. And the focus of the program is, is, is illustration as visual essay. And the godfather of the program is Robert Weaver another person. Everybody should look up Robert Weaver. Wow. Great
0: name. Great reference. Everybody should know the name Robert Weaver and the work. And John Ferry, of course, is the, um, the greatest evangelist for Robert Weaver and, and well worth it.
1: Yes. Even though his work doesn't really look at all, it's kind of funny, but he has that sort of open feeling that Weaver brought to his work. Weaver used to do work for major magazines like Time and Sports Illustrated in a genre that I don't know if it's still around as, uh, anymore. I, I you know, I, I haven't seen it lately, but it's basically the idea of doing a visual essay, going to a place. Robert Weaver covered the 1960 presidential uh, uh, campaign of, of Robert, uh, rather uh, John F. Kennedy. And, and you,
0: his, uh, his opponent was Richard Nixon, correct?
1: It did was I, Hubert I, it? Horatio Humphrey.
0: Oh, I thought it was Nixon. I don't know what I was thinking. Well,
1: well, okay. well Nixon was the Republican, but, um, he covered him through the entire. Oh, uh,
0: I see. Okay. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. So, um,
0: you
1: so know, were...
0: I, I interrupted. So let's get back. Re- Weaver was, uh, covering JFK during his, uh, run for the candidacy or for the president.
1: Well, I think both, but mainly for the candidacy.
0: Barron's story uh, tells lots of stories about Robert Weaver because Robert Weaver was Barron's story's um, consummate, I'll say, favorite teacher. And uh, Barron's story had a way of modernizing things for younger audiences. And he said, let me put it this way. Robert Weaver always said, execute, A high res idea with a low res execution, meaning don't let the pretty picture get in the way of what you're trying to say. And I think that is so smart. And you're saying that you went out on these, um, these in-class assignments to be, what did you call them? The, The, um, tell me again what, what Robert Weaver called it.
1: A visual essay.
0: There you go. So what yeah, do you we, think about Barron's uh, paraphrase about get the highest res idea and give a low res execution so that the picture doesn't get any way of the message or the idea? Does that ring true?
1: Yeah, that absolutely does ring true. Now, I never had the opportunity or the honor to be one of his students. He passed away, I believe, not long after John Ferry was um, in that program in the mid-90s. Um, but it absolutely rings true. I mean, his work, Robert Weaver's work can look like a very unstudied, uh, it's very simple. I mean, it's, you know, but if you look at it, if you see his work and you get it, you realize like this guy could really draw. It's just, I don't even want to like, a, I don't even feel like I should be commenting on it. You just have to go <laughs> and look at it. And, and uh, just brilliant work and a brilliant career. I think you summed
0: it up pretty well there. Uh, the typical person maybe walking down the street would look at a Robert Weaver and say, well, that looks like a child did it, or it doesn't look very finished. But to an artist that has been trying to draw and get better and work on that low-res execution that is backed up with the information of drawing um i think we can see it i'm i'm giving myself a compliment by saying oh yeah i totally get robert weaver the guy's miles ahead of where i will ever be but i think we agree that yes uh it does look a little unstudied i like that term you used alan cober would be another person that that i could make those comments about Mm
1: -hmm. yeah there was a there was kind of a a a very rough edge to some of those illustrators in the late 50s, um, you know, going into the 60s. Ben Shaw had that kind of ratty line uh, that you see in a lot of those illustrators from the late 50s, early 60s. A simplicity of design, very deceptive, very slippery. You gotta look at it. I think if you look at, like I fell in love at first with in the seventies with, you know, Bernie Fuchs and, and, and like, you know, Mark English and some of the, it was a sort of a beauty to illustration and a, and maybe a high design to a lot of that. But I think as I got older, you know, and then I sort of started looking at like NC Wyeth and the Brandywine school and just that pure painterly thing that they were doing where you sort of stepped into the picture. Um, and then to be confronted by, you know, uh, Robert Weaver and some of that sort of uh, more graphic illustration, I think that stuff is just just fantastic. I just uh, took me a while to come around. Sorry about that, but it, I got there.
0: When you first started attending SVA, you were saying you were, I will gently say, a little bit older than the average student. So how did it feel to be surrounded by the, uh, the great majority of students that were maybe 20 years, 15 years younger than you
1: were. That was, that's an interesting question. I was a stranger in a strange land. I knew that I had to really do well. In fact, a couple of former students from the Kansas City Art Institute were there sitting right next to me, um, and so, you Did that know, present I, an odd
0: dynamic or was it just like, eh, whatever, you know, he's one of us now.
1: It was, um, I think they might've thought of me as like, uh, the sort of the crazy uncle that they couldn't get away from, um, who was going to tell a bad joke or try to be hip. I don't know what they were thinking. They were very nice to me, Max and Robin. And they were, and the thing, what I think what was a little bit disconcerting to me is that they were like two of the really good students, you know, it's like, uh, you know, so I had to kill my television and, uh, you know, basically, uh, really, really go deep on this, uh, art business. And really, um, I it was a very, very trying two years for me. Um, well,
0: you said you had to go deep. Does that mean you had to go deep intellectually? because you had tremendous skills. you had skills way above anybody coming in there that was just getting out of a a four year art school and unless I mean, and these were superior students. I know the the students that you're talking about because they were my students too, and they were <laughs> <Sorry>. really superior. <laughs> I don't know if that was any thanks to us or not, but um <laughs> uh, so you had skills way beyond most of the people there is that true or not
1: Yeah and you know what it just got in my way Brent because I was doing like we were talking about Greg and Associates so I'm back there doing it in on Kansas City I'm doing like airbrush and I'm doing scratchboard illustration and I'm doing squiggly cartoon work um you know I'm doing all of these different uh styles and techniques and it really just tripped me up terribly. Um, you know, my writing teacher, uh, she basically told me, like, "Wow, you got to get rid of half this stuff right here." I showed her my portfolio. There was no, there was no continuity. And um, I mean, I don't want to bore everybody, but basically, I would say that this, the, the, the program is great for you figuring out what you want to do and finding a direction. Because when you pick out a thesis in your second year, it's a thesis year, you may pick out something, a theme, and you may think you've got a great idea. And what ends up happening is you begin to work on it and you find yourself going into the same directions and scattered. A lot of students.
0: And So, you would, might you, be, would you say that you were looking for a new point of view, or were you looking for the real point of view that was Mark Bischel?
1: Well, you know, I am like, I, there's many rooms in the temple, but <laughs> uh, what I was looking for was something that felt authentic, and something that I wasn't just looking for. I wouldn't say it's just one thing, but I was looking for, because if you look at great artists, they change and they do different things. There's no problem with different bodies of work. Was
0: there play involved in this search? I mean, were you playing with materials and attitudes and, and designs?
1: Yes, and and the sketchbook was probably the most important uh, tool that we were using. because The magic word, sketchbook. Yes, because you think of illustration as that final piece that goes into the magazine or the annual report. But at SVA in the MFA illustration program, drawing on location and just the pure act of drawing and boiling things down and getting what uh, Robert Weaver called quiddity. You know, that basic thing that, you know, that the, at the root of what it is that you're trying to do, those exercises, that exercise, drawing on location, I think was probably the most important um, learning process that I had while I was there. And the second year then following that up was the, the idea of having one subject and developing that over a year.
0: Well, was this all fun and giggles and it was just a party all the time, or was this a struggle? And did you have your face in your hands trying to figure out what you were going to do?
1: Well, I would say that the first year was adjusting to the city and, um, you know, I think, I think that there was a thawing in the first year and bringing yourself out into what it is coming into the light you know finding your own light and 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 you know sort of embracing that and then i would say that in the second year you tried to apply this this momentum let's say of the of the newfound things to a a theme that's important to you to the to every one of us the 20 of us and to dive into that was um Yeah, there was a lot of uh, tears. I mean, uh, you know, uh, people went through some real changes. It was very stressful. Um, I think that there were two kinds of students. There were the people who were that had a lot of technique and they came in and they were doing great work and they just would never open up to something new. They were professionals when they came in. They did really fine work while they were there, and they never surprised any of us in the two years we were there. And there were other students who came in who might not have drawn very well, who didn't have a very clear focus, whose work was very naive, maybe, in a way that a finished illustrator would find, you know, maybe inferior. But those people quite often did work that amazed me. I mean, I believe in miracles after this, More than I did before because I saw people like really dig deep and produce things that you would just go, wow, you could see it begin to expand and develop. And just it was amazing.
0: So the brain was the operative instrument here, it sounds like, in the whole thing. Like you can draw fine, you can paint fine, even if you can't draw or paint very well. But if you get your mindset correctly, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so can you? Tell me if I'm close to the truth or you think that I'm off.
1: Well, you know, that's really a a little bit of the culture that Marshall has woven into that program because you could come in, like one of the students was from Brown University. She was not from an art school. She came in, she was, uh, I would say her drawing style had a certain uh, lilt to it and it wasn't bad, uh, a little naive. But, you know, Marshall was able to like look at stuff things. And he's a great storyteller and he can find that essential thing. He's got a real talent for this. It's almost like a little bit uncanny and he can find that thing and help you to like push out into that, you know, push out into the deeper waters. And it's scary.
0: I would imagine that Marshall is one of these instructors that's not only passionate, but he's also nurturing and compassionate and has unbelievable information. I mean, quality information.
1: He does, he does. And he, and I'd say the mental game is his strongest, uh, I mean, he can paint and he's a great image maker. There's, I mean, he's a legendary, but he just, the, the way that he can see what you're doing. And, and also I would say that he had a great talent for, he discouraged me in several directions, like, but he never said, don't do this. You could tell, like, he would, he would sort of like, he would never say, don't do that. But you could kind of sense, huh? (laughs) I don't know why it was just kind of like, I'm going to kind of stay away from that. And he, he would kind of keep you uh, in the right direction. And we all had our individual thesis advisors as well. So, um, well, what was
0: the struggle like for you? Did it was the struggle two years long, or did you have a point where you could kind of take a breath and say, you know, I kind of have this under control now; I just have to execute. Or was it day to day, back and forth?
1: I would say in the first year, we had people come in. The, the thing about the program is, we had a lot of like art directors and gallery owners come in, and you would they would look at your work. And I started looking at what the people around me were doing and what some of these artists who came in were doing. And I realized like I really had to get my game on. And I had to get and I also had and to And you're like, talking
0: about the mental game.
1: I'm talking about the mental game and the mental game of of just like really going at it and not like second guessing um, and getting rid of so many habits related to image making or doing too many different things. I think, uh, I might've had the, um, idea that if I did a lot of things pretty well, that there was some kind of, um, I don't know, redemption in that. And at the end of the day, it was really about your thinking. And it wasn't always about as high finish um,
0: well, that goes right back to what we were talking about, Robert Weaver. And again, just to reiterate, or actually maybe say for the first time, uh, Mark and I are not attempting to do a program about SCA <laughs> or Marshall or Robert Weaver. We're talking yeah. about the, the mentality and the psychology of how strong those uh, people were in their artwork and in their teaching skills. And um, I'm just really intrigued mark by what you were going through you were cleaning out the cobwebs in your hard drive it sounds like and making a lot of decisions and you were talking about going deep in your yeah. mental game
1: I think maybe the hard drive crashed uh, sometime in the maybe sun- that's what it needed <laughs> in the between the first and second year I started how, to-
0: how you know that sounds like a funny thing but how accurate is that and did you see that with other people and did they recover from it
1: <laughs> yeah, i did see it i saw people like completely lose their way with their thesis and just really like have it morph into something completely different my own experience was this i had a pretty well fleshed out idea i was going to do the book of job okay and it was about Which is one- from the old
0: testament of the bible is that correct
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And Job was long suffering. No one suffered more literally than Job. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah. The, the The patience of Job. And, uh, and so I basically thought this would be a great book. It had beautiful poetry. And I started illustrating this in such a way that, you know, like, well, what would be the book of Job? And I was coming up with some visuals and I brought them into. Um, one of the critiques and we had a guest, uh, critique. Uh, and I think he was an illustrator and he slammed me in front of everybody. He said like, what are you bringing to this? Like what's new about this? Why should I even care? And those I are
0: was, all great legitimate questions. Actually,
1: <laughs> I thought I was doing really well. And I went back and I really like sat there and looked at this stuff. um, my thesis advisor, Michael Flanagan, the late Michael Flanagan, who was at PPOW Gallery in New York City, he was about ready to throw me overboard. He says, You have to produce more. You have to find something that will make this relevant I don't know, something to make give it integrity. It was a little bit too much by the numbers. And and yeah. he was
0: speaking in terms of ideation. He he wanted you to bring ideas, ideas not more paintings.
1: Absolutely, because I was painting uh, quite well, thank you, but the ideation was not there. And I remember on my way through the marshlands of New Jersey, on my way to Baltimore to teach on Mondays, I I got a gig teaching uh, on Mondays all day, an illustration class while I was in this program. And um, it was at night uh, coming back that I started thinking this wasteland is so beautiful, but this industrial waste, it's just gigantic structures that were abandoned. And I started to think about this almost as if you were separated from the world because you were just outside Manhattan, just across the river, basically. And it just seems separated, separated like Job was from his former life and from his family. And so I basically took this sort of—I used that backdrop of the, the 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 marshes in New Jersey as a backdrop to the Book of Job, and I made it more like a stage, like like that was a stage, a play, like a play. And I started going deeper into this, and it's just through doing it, um, I think that. That was a turning point for me. I didn't go home for Thanksgiving that year. I just faced myself down in my little studio and I just produced and I had to turn you know, everything off. I didn't have a cell phone at the time, but you know, just kind of like disconnect and like really go deep. And I think that at that point I was able to begin to see something. And I did a painting that I disliked and I sandpapered that sucker down. I started seeing things in the, scratch, you know, the, the scratching of the scratching of the chaos of the surface, kind of like looking at like images and clouds. And I started to paint. I thought this sounds kind of crazy, but I started painting, um, you know, into that, back into the painting that I had defaced. And at that point, I think it started to to sort of draw forth.
0: So you were almost doing archaeology on your own painting. Absolutely. And I like what you said about, uh, you had to face yourself in your studio. And I've always said that artists and musicians, people that are really creative do that more than most people walking down the street, not to use the walking down the street, uh, idea again, but I think artists listen to themselves and they're in tune with themselves more. Now that doesn't make us wonderful people just because of that reason, but I think we do look at that. I know a couple of people, uh, in my life right now that I say they are hiding from their life because they do a bunch of any things that they can do so that Mm -hmm. they don't have to listen to themselves. And Rembrandt always said, I am always with me, (laughs) (laughs) which is a funny thing to say, but you can't get away from yourself and you, we're actually looking for yourself in that room over that Thanksgiving break.
1: Yeah. And it's a funny combination because you don't want to go too far into yourself. You want to bring it forth and maybe forget yourself a little bit. It's almost like this. When I thought about things too much without action, it just got heavier and heavier. But once I started just like not worrying about failure or, or once it got to the point where I had to do, you know, at least six things this semester, or I was out of the program, you know, and, you know, and I was, I I was, you know, it was getting into some later innings here, you know, I had to just produce. And at that point, I had to kind of forget about myself and do something. And it's a weird combination of between being conscious and self-aware and sort of just dumping yourself and going in and, not worrying and uh there's and letting go like letting go of the piece of wood you're clinging to in the ocean. So at
0: this point it sounds like you successfully wrapped up your thesis
1: and graduated from the program and what was the next step? Some of the work that I did in the program and some of the other things that I was doing because I was still working as an illustrator, you know, I mean like you had been in CA and the society of illustrators. And I was like the guy on Gilligan's Island. And it was like, we were never going to get off the island of never being, I just could not get in those things. And suddenly I got nine pieces in CA. Wow. Society of illustrators. Was it, it was from a great... single
0: project or just a whole bunch of different things?
1: You know, that was the great thing. It was a bunch of different things. And um, I got in these things. I started getting calls from magazines. I did some stuff for the Boston Globe, LA Times. You know, uh, the, the, I remember talking to the art director for Verve Records. But I also, at this time, fell in with a, with an ad agency. Um, a, a friend who was in the uh, uh, in the program with me was also working at an ad agency, a a large ad agency, a worldwide ad ad agency. So this is early 2000, somewhere around there. Yes, yeah, the year 2000. And um, so I get out and I thought, well, look, I'll start illustrating, but she said, look, these people are looking for a storyboard artist. And this is an ad agency with like over 200 offices around the world, okay? So I went over there and I was offered sort of a freelance perma-temp situation there. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting at a desk uh, in, in a room with a, with a few other guys, seasoned pros. These guys were good. We were doing work for Volvo and Evian. What kind of work? Did I miss that? Storyboard work. Storyboards. We were the in-house studio, uh, which is a little bit rare and probably... Probably non-existent at this point, um, but we were an in-house studio and uh, illustration studio, and art directors and copywriters would come in with their scripts and have us do storyboards that they would mount on large pieces of uh, the, the the rest of the studio. The production would mount on large pieces of foam core and put into booklets as sales tools for pitches to the clients for new campaigns and ads. And and you're talking about huge Huge. national and international clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We were at the the time. I mean, I was there for quite a few years and we did work for, um, Heineken, Hyatt, Jaguar, PayPal, those we did the most interesting man in the world campaign, by the way, for them. Weren't
0: you cast as the most interesting man at first?
1: I was. I turned it down. Uh, that
0: was smart. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get involved in that.
1: But I remember the two guys that brought that in. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, these things sort of develop. To be in the room occasionally with people, a copywriter and an art director, sort of like, you know, maybe even arguing about, like, what, what this ad was supposed to be about. Uh, yeah, um, tell
0: us a little bit more about what I will call the psychology of the room.
1: Well, there's many different rooms. Um, there was our room, which was a, which was part of a larger studio, and the people that I worked with were seasoned pros, like I said, and they they were rapid, fast at at concept drawings and doing storyboards. Nobody knows what anybody's talking about. When they go into a meeting with the clients, and these were like big clients, like I said, we had um, Volvo, Evian, Exxon Mobil, we had Dr. Smith GlaxoSmithKline. When they, when, when the account service people would go into a meeting with them, there's millions of dollars on the line about like what is the look of this TV ad, what is this campaign going to look like. So they would ask us to basically do storyboards. And they were they were just the illustration of the concept of what they were trying to what their idea was. So basically For
0: like a television commercial or uh, a yes. campaign, a print ad.
1: We did both. We did print and we did um, mostly uh, television. And um, so what would happen is. They would come up with great ideas and describe them to the creative director. And if it met all the the metrics of what the creative director knew that the client needed for their product, then they would send them downstairs to the illustration studio. And my manager, who was a great storyboard artist, is a great storyboard artist, would say, um, all right, Mark, you do this or Joe, you do that. You know, it was whoever was up. What and were some we, of
0: those metrics like? You said if if the metrics met the criteria of the client, what, what types of things were those?
1: Volvo was known for very sensible shoes, cars, you know, very boxy and very safe. And the brief from the client was, we don't want to lose our branding. It's safe and it's sensible, but now we have a luxury sedan. So we need to stress luxury and have that be part of the mix.
0: So it had to be a luxurious, safe Volvo.
1: Yes, yes. And it's the same way when they came up with their first SUV. It was like something nobody's ever seen, you know, like a Volvo doing an SUV was a big break from their sort of, uh, I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, so they would basically say, you know, these are the things we want to stress the safety, but we want to stress style, okay, or luxury. We want to, we want to bring the brand up and sort of go into Audis and Mercedes territory now. You see what I'm saying? Sure. And, so, and like you said before,
0: there are millions and millions of dollars and jobs on the line.
1: Absolutely. And I was aware of that. Now it seemed very casual as they did it because these people who I was working for were all insane. Okay. So, um, I guess that would help, you know, so they would come down and they would have their script with them and I would sit with them with a sketchbook and they would say, okay, here's the script. And they would circle like the first line and say, okay, in frame one, we got, a." a uh, we've got a little boy and he's riding in the back seat of this new Volvo SUV. Okay. And then in frame two, we want to see, you know, and they well, what,
0: what was the pace of that? I mean, how long did you get to do the little boy in the back seat? I mean, was this like Mach 2 with your hair on fire?
1: Well, you would do like a really quick sketch and they would say, no, no, no. We want to see, you know what, let's look at it from the inside looking out. No, 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 that's no good. Let's go, let's be right outside the, the passenger the rear passenger window, and the boys looking out the window, and then we see the reflection of the Loch Ness Monster coming out. I don't know. We would sort of work (laughs) out the POVs. Basically, like when they came out with the Volvo SUV, the idea was something that's never been seen before. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is an example. So what this copywriter Uh, Jason and this art director, John came up with was, okay, we're going to introduce the Volvo SUV XC90 and we're going to have the people riding in the car, see amazing things that have never been seen. Wow.
0: Okay. Yeah. No pressure. Just amazing things that have never
1: been seen before on earth. Good. Right. And so when you're doing something like that, Brent, what they want is not just the idea, but you also need to give in the storyboard the mood, the feeling of being on a twisting road on the side of a lock and then something rippling under the water and coming up. And you want to see the amazement on the little boy's face and the reflection of the monster who seems rather friendly, actually, on the glass with the boy behind it. And nobody else sees it.
0: So this is the old adage of if you're looking through a catalog and you need a pair of hiking boots, you not only show the hiking boots, but you tell the story about how fantastic you're going to feel on top of that mountain after you hike to the top with these boots on, you need the boots. Is that kind of the same idea?
1: Yeah. Basically you needed some kind of narrative because people don't want to just see the product. They want to see some kind of positioning and some kind of uh, narrative,
0: storytelling. So you're telling a 15-second story?
1: Well, this one here might have been a minute.
0: Wow, a minute commercial? Okay. Well, it was an introduction. Oh, I see. (laughs) Okay, I got you.
1: So they would call that sort of the, uh, I I think they might have called it the the Halo ad or something. Somehow they would, sometimes they would do an ad that sort of was a big, all-encompassing ad, and then there would be like smaller spots around it so what's the the
0: basic function of a storyboard so you do storyboards and then what why did they need them
1: we made the ideas visible and then everybody could see it even the people in the boardroom when the client when the account service people at the ad agency would go to the client and say, look, we got this great idea. If they handed everybody the script that I started out with, the thing that the art director and the copywriter brought down, everybody's gonna have a different idea about what they're, they would all have a different idea about what's being presented. So the storyboard's job was to present the idea in a broad sense, not with too much detail so that the client would say, will she be wearing that blouse? Is he going to be having those, is he going to have those glasses on? You know, he didn't want it to be so specific that they got caught up in the detail, but she wanted everybody to be on the same page.
0: Did you see evolution in this business from when you started and you're still in it? I understand that, but you're no longer at the agency. What kind of evolution in the business did you witness? If any,
1: I would say that there was a lot of evolution. So, when we started, there was like no Google Image. I think that technology has changed what we're doing a lot. When I started, we were drawing, you know, with we just used up reams of paper. And when we started coloring these things with markers, I mean, the 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 air just rippled in there with fumes. I mean, we <laughs> were just like we were badgers. We were badgers going at this. Any long term effects from those fumes? Well, I you know, uh, you know, it's it. I may find out one of these days, you never know. Um, <laughs> we'll skip that question. <laughs> yeah. A few years, well, about seven years ago, you know, I started coloring my drawings on in Photoshop. And then about, I don't know, five years ago, I finally just basically I've been drawing on a Cintiq, a Wacom, Wacom Cintiq. So uh, you pretty much went
0: paperless at that point. No more Coptic markers, skip the Photoshop. Well, maybe the Cintiq went actually into Photoshop, but you literally went paperless.
1: Absolutely. So now, and even even our rough sketches would be done, um, you know, on an iPad or on the Cintiq. Um, I mean, I basically sometimes will break, I will break out a pad of paper and and we'll sketch it up. Still a really really fast interface, a pencil on paper. Sure. Um, It's a great interface how easy
0: was it from you to go from scratching on paper to drawing on a Cintiq? Was that uh, effortless?
1: No, there was a lot of trial. Um, I would say that when I was with those guys, you know, we would sort of help each other. I think there was a great knowledge pool there. Plus being at the ad agency, I got help from other people. And, you know, the there's one one important aspect that's that's really eye-opening to me is that, and I hear this from other people, the age of the company putting you through a training program to ramp you up for something new is just about gone. You have to, today, it's all about self-learning, and you've gotta constantly do it, and I find it, you know, it's daunting, it's daunting, and uh, once we got this going, it wasn't so bad, Um, and I would say that another change would be, um, now that it's digital, people expect things a little bit quicker, even though they take just about as much time. And also the fit and finish of the drawing is much tighter, much more finished. There's more of an expectation. And I don't know if it's generational, like people are used to looking at digital images. So now that you're working digitally, it's got to be just as good. Um, or if it's just, um, comes along with the technology. I kind of think it's a little bit of both, but it's, I think it's faster. Um, the turnaround expectation, the expectation is to get it even quicker and the expectation has got to be better. At some point you talked to me over
0: the years that when you were at point A as a storyboard artist, uh, you were speaking with two or three people that were in control and they were the decision makers and then at point D or E in your career, instead of talking to two or three people, you were talking to eight or nine or 13 and nobody seemed to be able to say yes or no. So clarify me on that if I'm incorrect or tell us a little bit about it.
1: I wouldn't say that that is the case with every uh, particular project that I worked on. But I've talked to other storyboard artists and I definitely saw sort of a, a an evolution where like like if you were talking back in 2000 and maybe like the first 10 years I, into this because I still consider myself like a finished illustrator and I do fine art. So we're mainly talking about, I don't really brand myself as a storyboard artist, but but this is what I saw. And so when I first started, a lot of the art directors that I worked with, those women and men were like old ad people, and they would sit down and they would do the rough sketches. They'd say, okay, here's the script. And you know sometimes you had to watch out. I remember a creative director, a big guy, you know, he would, he would take, he said, give me the pad. I'm going to show you what I want. And he would draw this thing up and he was rapid fast, you know, and, and he would go through all like 15 frames or 20 frames that he needed tomorrow. You know, we had to be fast. Um, we were expected to do like 10 finished frames a day and, you know, maybe eight color. Uh, Sometimes it was a much more than that though. And, um, but he would draw it up. She would draw it up that changed as we went on. It was more about people coming in and describing things. It was very verbal and we would do more of the drawing. And then it started to seem like, um, you know, there's, I would say that this is my personal experience, but I've also talked to other people and, and have heard the same thing that, when they talk about like collaboration, you hear that a lot, you know, these meetings would get bigger and bigger. And pretty soon I was in a room taking a brief, you know, and there would be like, you know, seven people in the room and Uh, seven physical people, or did you ever do
0: conference calls, that sort of thing, or was everybody on site?
1: Oh man, you know, Brent, it's seven physical people and like one person on the speakerphone in the middle, you know, just to kind of give it some variety, right? (laughs) And so, you know, and it was kind of like, oh, we don't know what the demo should be. Let me call so-and-so. And then they would call and they would chime in from, I don't know, God knows where they are, right? And they're like, well, yeah, I'm thinking, I guess, you know, sometimes the more people that were involved. It would just be, it became very disjointed. And, um, a lot of the work that we did was pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical is.
0: Now, has is, that been, did you do pharma ads the whole time or is that a new development?
1: Well, you know, we were doing a lot of stuff for, you know, we had cars and beer and, um, you know, we did some, what would you Savage. call those?
0: What do you call I mean, the cars that's consu- and the beer?
1: Consumer advertising. Okay. Consumer, but then we got more into the pharmaceutical, and that's highly art-directed. And there's probably a lawyer in the background somewhere making sure that we include certain things because we don't want to mislead anybody, you know. And um, and I, you know, I can understand that. So you know, like say I'm drawing a, a you know an ad for a, a drug to treat you know COPD, a respiratory uh, condition, severe. And, you know, you have people out doing things somewhere along the line. For example, I was doing a storyboard and a lawyer who I never met just kind of chimes in and says, we need to make sure there's a place for the hero to sit down in, in each frame, you know, because we don't want to say you'll get so much better that you can just walk forever. I would say that a lot of the romance went away. I think that now that There is less consumer advertising on television and there's probably there's an explosion television, but there's so many channels and then you've got social media. I think it drove everybody a little crazy trying to figure out how to get the most people to, you know, the most eyeballs on, you know, broadcast. I don't know if I don't even know if you can call it broadcast, but just video productions of advertisements. You mentioned one time to me about, uh, you were in, and I don't know exactly what the product
0: was, but, uh, I think your paraphrase was, well, gee, how do we make this
1: ketchup socially aware? There is a big deal in advertising. And I wouldn't say, you know, I just worked down in the, in the, you know, the boiler room. I'm the one shoveling coal into the, <laughs> you no, know, I don't know what's going up, a top ship, you know, Um, there seems to be this, um, it drives me crazy, actually. I I don't know if you can, everybody wants to make their product more than just the product. They want to make it like, yeah, relevant in some manner. Um, they want to, you know, there's a lot of talk about like actionable insights and ecosystems and how do we populate this? What is the social, um, metrics that we're trying to hit? Thank
0: goodness I have no idea what you're talking about.
1: And so, well, yeah, that's the thing. I'm, I'm I mean, proud of that. And and sometimes I would get briefs and people would talk like this. And I'm like, and I I, I had, I, I developed a great, um, like talent for smiling and nodding my head. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'm doing that right now. and then i would just figure out how to do this later you know it didn't make what i did easier i never expected it to be easy but i feel like you know this idea of infinite collaboration and apps where people can pile on um and you know sort of comment from the sides is not necessarily something that makes things better nor does it make things uh you know, quicker. I mean, it just, um, you know, there's, there's the thing about speed, quality, price, pick any two, and you cannot bend physics. And I, that's, you know, you're, you're going to have to give up one of those. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I remember those from, uh, from the old days then, and it's
0: still true. And it's probably more true now than ever before.
1: I love collaboration, but I do like it when my, I don't know, I do work, I do freelance now and it's really the other way. Now, when I do freelance, I will talk to a few people, you know, ideas, even, even 20 years ago, you know, 18 years ago, ideas, you know, evolved from when we started out, they would come back, the client would look at and say, you know, we don't like this, or this doesn't quite hit that metric of, of this thing that we're trying to, you know, promote. And so we would, we would, we would change storyboards, but um, I would say sometimes now it seems like people are a little lost and there doesn't seem to be a way forward sometimes. I think it's a very confusing time.
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much. I've learned a lot uh, about the storyboard business that I, I had no idea. You had great insights and I loved the um, the talk about your development during your time getting your master's degree. So I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thank you, Brent. You're the best.